take a moment and just welcome you to Hagerstown Church. Uh, my name is Josh McLean, and I'm one of the pastors here, and it's my privilege to, to open the Word of God and uh, to share with you this morning. Before we do that, I want to just use uh, an illustration to segue into the text this morning. Whether you're a sports fan or not, you have to love a good comeback story. A good comeback story. Super Bowl 51, January 2017. It was a fantastic game. Whether you watched it or not, I'm not sure, but you'll enjoy even just hearing this. New England versus the Falcons. I'm not really a fan, but you have to respect. You've got to have respect for the GOAT, for the greatest of all time, which is Tom Brady. Toward the beginning of the third quarter, New England was down 28-3. to 28-3. to It didn't look good. No team in the history of the Super Bowl had ever been more than 10 points behind and able to come back and win the game. But they were down 25 points. But the Patriots never gave up. And I'm not here to, to, to preach about the Patriots. But follow me. It's, an, it's a wonderful illustration. They never gave up. They always believed that it was possible for them to win the game. And Brady led the Patriots on five straight scoring drives that equaled 31 points. Imagine that. Two quarters left. And in his final two quarters, in that final half of the game, New England pulled it together and looked like a well-oiled machine. And the last touchdown wrapped up the score at 34-28, to 28, victory for the Patriots. What changed from the first half to the second? It's difficult to say. It's the same team, essentially, on the same field, same football. But what was different? Well, they were able in the second quarter, in the second half, rather, to harness the momentum and to really drive it home. As you take a step back, you see that the Patriots, they deserve to be there on that field. They were a, a good team. They deserved to be there. They had what they needed to win that game. They worked hard even that week to be in the best possible shape and to perform that night. Imagine the despair that you'd be tempted to feel, though, when you're 25 points down at the half. It's difficult. It'd be overwhelming. There's no hope. Never been done before. You're thinking that in your mind. It's over. We're two and a half times the greatest deficit ever overcome. We can't do it. When you're down in the, 20, in the third quarter, down 25 points, it's helpful to know that it's actually been done before, that a team has actually come back and been able to overcome this. I think that's a little bit about what this passage that we'll look at this morning is about. Ezra chapter 7. As Jews would read that over the last two millennia, as they would read that, they'd be encouraged by the fact that God had been faithful, that he had identified and given identity rather to his people, and that he'd given them the resources that they needed, and that all they had to do was to act on the promises that he had given to them, and if they did, they would overcome their current situation. That's what's taking place in Ezra chapter 7. In Ezra chapter 6, it described the completion of the temple. In chapter 7, it brings us up to date in, in 458 B.C., the seventh year of the reign of Artaxerxes I. There's a lapse in time of approximately 57 years. You had the, you had the, the exiles, the deportation, all, of, all the Jews taken out of their land, and spread throughout the kingdom, mainly in Babylon. After 70 years, the first group went back. 
came back to Jerusalem and they began to rebuild the temple. That's in chapter 6. And then in chapter 7, there's been 60 years that have gone by. Not a lot of ball moving down the field. It doesn't seem like it's going really well. They had some momentum. They had some steam. And now it's just kind of fizzled out. But then a man by the name of Ezra comes onto the scene. And Ezra has a desire, a tremendous desire, to see Jerusalem filled with the people of God, worshiping the person of God. So he longs to reestablish the worship of Yahweh there in Jerusalem. And it says, the Bible says, that the Lord had his hand on him. And that the hand of the Lord on somebody, when it's said like that, it indicates that the Lord had given that person a specific, special amount of favor. Additionally, this guy, Ezra, who had the hand of the Lord upon him, it says that the king gave him everything that he had requested. Gave him everything that he had requested. We don't really know all that he asked for, but in this chapter, we're about to read about what he actually received. It lists out all the things supplies that Ezra would need to go back and do, in a sense, to start a discipleship movement there in Jerusalem. Everything that he would need it's going to be supplied. So in just a moment, we'll see the letter that Artaxerxes sends with Ezra that says, hey, this is all the things that he can take with him. These are all the things, all the storage places that he can dip into when he gets into Jerusalem to take and, and to accomplish what he needs to accomplish. But God had put it in the heart of this king who was not a Jew, not a believer, to meet these needs that Ezra would have. So a caravan Thousands of Jews crossing there above the Arabian desert, taking over two and a half months, traveling over 500 miles. They come back to the land of Jerusalem, overcoming really so many obstacles and so many odds. But God had supplied them with everything that they needed. As a Jew would read this passage that had been recorded down historically, remember we think critically and we think, why was this passage, why was this story recorded for us today? Why was it recorded for the Jews and posterity? Why, why would they have that? Any Jew, when they would read this, would, would walk away literally encouraged to know that God could do this, that God could work sovereignly in the life and in the heart of a pagan king to supply every need for the Jews as they would begin to again worship the Lord there in Jerusalem. And so I pray that that is not just what the Jews would be encouraged by in the 3rd century or the 4th century as they're reading this. I pray God's people this morning, Hagerstown Church, gathered here this morning, would also come away from this text with a sense of encouragement as we see that God would Supply every need that's necessary. So this morning, if you have your Bible, I want, I want to encourage you to read with me. Ezra chapter 7 will begin in verse number 1. If you don't have a Bible, it's available for you on the screen this morning. We'll read at verse 1. The Bible says, Now after this, in the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia, Ezra, the son of Sariah, son of Azariah, son of Hilkiah, son of Shalom, son of Zadok, Son of Ahitub, son of Amariah, son of Azariah. Yeah, pray for me now. Son of Marioth, uh, son of Zariah, uh, son of Uzi, son of Buki, son of Abishua, uh, son of Phineas, son of Eleazar, son of, there's an easy one, Aaron, the chief priest. And this Ezra went out from Babylonia 
And he was a scribe skilled in the law of Moses that the Lord, the God of Israel, had given. And the king granted him all that he asked for, for the hand of the Lord his God was on him. And there went up also to Jerusalem in the seventh year of Artaxerxes the king, some of the people of Israel and some of the priests and Levites and the singers, the gatekeepers and the temple servants. And Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was in the seventh year of the king. For on the first day of the first month, he began to go up from Babylonia. And on the first day of the fifth month, he came to Jerusalem, for the good hand of his God was on him. For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. We'll skip down to verse 27. It says, Blessed be the Lord the God of our fathers, who put such a thing into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors and before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage. For the hand of the Lord my God was on me and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. May God bless the reading of his word. Would you pray with me this morning? God, we thank you that you are a God that sees our need and meets it. God, that you're a God that that wants to meet our need before we even know what our need is, and you've already begun to act. God, we don't even know what we do need, and yet you do. God, we pray that you would help us to take courage as well, as we consider the plight that we have as Christians in this day and age. As we consider the call and the command that you've placed on our lives to make disciples here in Hagerstown and around the world, God, it seems daunting, it seems impossible, it seems as if we can't do it, and yet we know that you've commanded us to do it. You've given us the identity that we need to do it. You've given us the authority. God, you've you've met every single need that we have. God, give us the faith to believe that, and we we would act on that. Ultimately, that that we would take courage that we would preach your gospel and call sinners to repent and trust that you will bring that to pass. God, you're faithful to your word. We claim that this morning and we ask these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said a moment ago, any Jew living in the fourth century, as they would read this passage, what would the takeaway be? They would literally be encouraged. They would literally be, uh, come to the place where they took courage Because they would see that what was lost was then able to be reclaimed. A father reading this to his son in the 3rd century B.C. might have said something like this. You see, son, it it may appear that the Messiah will never come. And that we'll never have redemption. That we'll never be restored entirely. That we'll never be rescued. But with God, son, listen, all things are possible. That's what what a, a father would have said to his son in those days. And now throughout the years, we can say the same thing. Even this morning, as we look at this passage, we can walk away saying we can have confidence knowing that God will give us fruit, that God will meet our needs as we seek to make disciples and fulfill the great commission, the great command that rests on our shoulders. He's already given us what we need. And so what's your takeaway for this passage this morning? What has been lost and stolen is now able to be reclaimed. What has been lost and stolen is now able to be reclaimed. And so because of that, Christian, take courage. God is with us. He has supplied everything that we need to accomplish the task that is before us. And we'll see that as we walk through this story, this account, the life of Ezra. 
And so we'll look at three things this morning. The first thing that we'll see is Ezra's identity. We'll see Ezra's identity. As we move on down, we'll begin to see his opportunity. He had quite an opportunity, Ezra's opportunity. And finally, we'll see Ezra's action. And so the identity, the opportunity, and the action. There in verses 1 through 6, we'll look first at Ezra's identity. Ezra's identity. The Jewish tradition has quite a bit to say about our boy Ezra. Quite a bit to say about him. As a matter of fact, they claim that he established the system of synagogue worship while in Babylon. That's quite a feat. That's very interesting. We wonder where this synagogue practice even come from. Well, tradition has it that Ezra stated it while they were in exile. Played an important role even, they claim, in the formation of the Old Testament canon. It's even claimed that he wrote books like Chronicles, Nehemiah, Esther, and the one that bears his name, Ezra. Many claim this. Whether these actions are true or not, we can't know them for sure, but what we can deduce from this is that he's quite, a, he's quite a guy. He's quite a character, and it lines up with what the Scriptures are telling us in the first six verses of chapter 7. In fact, Ezra has been regarded by many to be a bit of a second Moses. Think about that. To claim that somebody was almost like a second Moses. Imagine all the things, all the ways that God used Moses in the life of his people. And then for somebody to say, oh, you're, you're similar to Moses. You're like Moses. That would be quite a feat. It would be quite an accomplishment. But this passage makes another point very clear. I don't want to get off into just wondering and guessing. It makes some things very clear. Specifically, it tells us that, er, or that uh, Ezra came from a priestly line. That Ezra came from a priestly line. The, the genealogy of Ezra, it's right there in verses 1 through 5. It begins with Ezra, and it works its way back in history to the time of Aaron, who was the first high priest. Who was the first high priest of the tabernacle when they were in the wilderness wandering time. And Aaron was the brother of Moses. And he was there when the law was first given. And Ezra could trace his line all the way back to him. And that qualified. The fact that he could do that qualified him to be a high priest, or a priest rather, himself. You see, he had to be a Levite to be a priest. Didn't necessarily have to be in the line of Aaron, but he had to be of the tribe of of Levi. And it gave him, therefore, the authority to be a teacher of the law in Israel and in Jerusalem. But you might ask, what exactly is a priest? What does a priest do? Well, all priests are defined primarily by their intercessory role. So a priest would, would intercede on behalf of God's people, both relaying messages uh, from God to the people, helping the people to understand the very word of God as it was relayed and shared. And also in the sacrificial system, as they worked in the tabernacle and, in, and later in the temple, caring for those uh, positions there. But again, it was a, a big part of what they did was to intercede. Did you know this morning, Christian, that if you are indeed a Christian, that you are of sorts a priest. That you are a priest as well. I don't want to get all weird on you, but I want to explain to you what I mean by that, or what the, rather what the Bible means about that. All priests, again, are defined by their intercessory role. And as Christians, we are called to be intercessors. That we would intercede in certain ways, in certain forms and fashions. After the time of Christ, the work that he did on the cross, God has become equally accessible to all. And every Christian has equal opportunity and potential to serve God and to worship him. 
You see, as the church, we intercede for one another. That's something that we're called to do on a regular basis. And church, I-, I hope that you truly do that. Every Sunday we make the plea, would you share with us what you're going through? Would you share with us the, the struggles, the prayer requests that you would have? Write them on the Connect card, put them in the box, and we'll pray for them as a church. We'll send those out when it's appropriate to the body. It shouldn't just be relegated to that area. As Christians, as a church, we should be interceding for one another naturally. As we come to know of issues that we struggle with, both with sin and and circumstances, we would intercede on behalf, asking God to, to strengthen one another, to give us greater faith, greater repentance. But we don't just intercede on behalf of one another for the church. We also, as Christians, are called to intercede on behalf of those who are lost and dying in this world, lost without the hope of Christ. Not only do we go to God and intercede in prayer, but we also intercede as we relay the message of the hope of Christ that we find in the gospel. And that is this, that as sinners, God's condemnation and his wrath is upon us. And if we sin, and we all have, we're destined and damned for hell. And the good news is this, that if we will repent of our sins and place our faith in the work that Jesus did on the cross, that we can receive forgiveness. And as intercessors, what do we do? Well, we share that on a daily basis. We ask God to to allow us to see the world and to see our city the way that he sees them. Those who are lost and in need of a Savior, we intercede as we share that message. Christian, you are a priest. First Peter 2.5 says, You yourselves like living stones are built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and moreover, or whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. You know, it's it's important that we see Ezra's bloodline because he was a priest. It gave him authority. It gave him responsibility. And so does yours. So does your bloodline. As you consider who it was that shared the message of the gospel with you, Who preached that to you the first time? Where you were when your eyes were opened to the truths of the gospel? Consider your own bloodline. Can yours be traced all the way back to the high priest? We'll talk about that just in a moment. There's nothing wrong with celebrating your godly heritage. There's nothing wrong with remembering who it was that shared the gospel with you. So I'd like for you to do that right now. If, If you're here this morning and you're a Christian... Who was it that shared the gospel with you? Take a moment, as you, even as I speak. Thank God for that person. Where were you when you first began to understand? And what did your life look like as you were discipled? As people poured into your life, as people read uh, different quotes to you or encouraged you, or maybe they read a, a book with you, or maybe they took you to a conference or whatever it is. Maybe they just spent time with you drinking coffee late at night or early in the morning, whatever it is. Who discipled you? Celebrate that. Thank God for that. They're part of your godly heritage. 
And there's nothing wrong with us remembering that. Even as a church this morning, I reminisce about the, the heritage that we have as a church. Maybe you know this, maybe you don't. In 2009, Cross Lanes Baptist Church in Cross Lanes, West Virginia, they had a, a vision to see a church planted in Martinsburg, West Virginia, and that that church would plant other churches in and around the D.C., Baltimore metro area. And it came to fruition in 2009. Jacob Atchley came to, the church at, came to Martinsburg and planted the church at Martinsburg. And several years went by and they planted another. Even a few more went by and they planted a second. And that church is Hagerstown Church. And here we are this morning. I, I celebrate that because they're here this morning. We have a godly heritage as a church. It's a wonderful thing collectively as we consider what God has done. And we celebrate that this morning. But remember this. As we celebrate, as we're thankful, our praise does not end at the church at Martinsburg. It goes past them. It goes past cross lanes. And it goes all the way back to the initiator of that gospel and of that hope and of that call and that is found in Christ. It's not in Pastor Seth. It's not in Pastor Mark. It's not in Pastor Jacob or Pastor AJ. It goes all the way back to Christ himself. As you consider who it was that shared the gospel with you just a moment ago, you thanked God for them. Again, we trace our heritage individually farther back than just those who discipled us. And let us to the Lord. It goes all the way back to Christ. We should never be enamored or stuck on them. It's not about them. It's always about Jesus. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5-9, through 9, Paul is addressing some divisions that were caused by pride there in the church at Corinth. And as he does, he, he, he's, he's helping them to see that they're overemphasizing their godly heritage, or at least the beginning stages of it. Many people were thinking that they were better leaders or better qualified to be leaders or better Christians because certain apostles or people had shared the gospel with them or even baptized them. And Paul's saying, that's foolishness. And he squashes it. That's unhelpful. It's not true. He's not saying, don't think about them. Don't thank God for them. Don't celebrate that. Don't try to imitate that. He's not saying that. Let's see what he says. In verse 5, Paul says, what then is Apollos? And what is Paul? They're both servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each Paul says, I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor, for we are God's fellow workers. Then the analogy shifts here. He goes from growth and, and, uh, and planting to the building. And he says, you are God's field, but you are God's building. Verse 11, he says, for no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid in Jesus Christ. You see, he says, you can trace the edifice, the buildings, the walls, the siding, the front door. You can trace it all down to the foundation. And that is laid on Jesus Christ and Jesus Christ alone. So as we see Ezra's testimony, Ezra's genealogy, his bloodline, how is this all connected? Well, Ezra doesn't just say, this is my dad. This is the one who brought me into this world. This is the one who discipled me. He goes past that to his grandfather and his, his father and his father and his father all the way back to the high priest. And we as Christians this morning, we should do the same thing. You see, our high priest this morning is Jesus Christ. 
And he is who we trace our our bloodline back to. He's who we trace our genealogy back to. And he is who we receive our authority from. You see, the one who discipled you, the one who led you to the Lord, be it your parents, your neighbor, your co-worker, some pastor, whether it be a church, either way, they're all just conduits through which the grace of God flows into Hagerstown and into this place even now. So we should thank them. We should celebrate them. They're servants of God. You, many of you, even this morning, as disciplers and evangelizers, you're servants of God, but you're just conduits. It's God who sends the grace down through that. It is God who has initiated it. And so what is your pedigree this morning? Where does your authority come from this morning, Christian? It comes from Jesus Christ himself. He is the one. He is the reason why you are considered a priest this morning. And so celebrate your heritage. Thank God for it, but recognize the sovereignty of God in it. As you trace your priestly line, realize that it finds its start, its foundation, its initiation in Jesus Christ, our high priest. Maybe you're wondering this morning, am I a priest? Does this include me? All this talk, this is kind of weird, this is interesting, but am I a priest? Who is a priest? How do you come into the line of Jesus, who is the great high priest? I want to, I want to share with you, there was a similar question asked in John chapter 3. A man by the name of Nicodemus, he asked Jesus, he said, Jesus, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus says to him, you must be born again. In essence, what he is saying to that man is he's saying, you must be born into the priestly line. You must be born again. The man gets a little confused. He says, I need to be birthed again from my mother. And Jesus says, no, you've got to be born spiritually. That's what I would offer to you this morning. What does that look like, though? Jesus there in the passage told him that whoever would look to the cross of Christ and trust in that sacrifice, that they would be saved eternally and therefore would be born into the kingdom of priests. I'll paint it a little bit more clearly. God's wrath is upon those who are in sin. They will receive damnation and separation from God in a place called hell. And yet those who will repent of their sin and look to Jesus Christ will receive salvation and will be born again spiritually into this kingdom of priests. Jesus, the high priest, he made the final sacrifice for God's people by dying on the cross for them. And he interceded where we could not. Even if we were willing, we were unable. And Jesus Christ did what we could not do. He went where we could not go. He interceded for us. And now we as Christians, as, as priests in a way, we intercede as well. I'm going to park here and Spend a little bit more time understanding this idea of priest. Specifically, as we apply it to the life of a Christian, I want to ask this question. Have you forgotten that your role is that of a priest? Have you forgotten that? You get so caught up in doing things that are okay. We mean well by them. But yet they never truly and directly intercede for people. Is that you? Have you forgotten your role as a priest? Have you neglected the duty of teaching your fellow brother and sister, even here in the church? That's what we're to do. That's what we're called to do. Christian, have you deserted your call to pray for and, and intercede for on behalf of this church? 
and your brothers around and brothers and sisters around the world? Have you forgotten the call to preach the gospel to the world around us? And as much as we want to think that different activities and outreaches are, are great, and, and they are, but they can't be divorced from an explicit proclamation of the good news. We can't neglect that. We can't, we, can't, we can't move away from that. If we're to be successful, though, in the task that we're called to, we must recognize our identity as priests. We have to. And by way of application, I, I, I want to uh, get to the, the Great Commission. It seems as though we find ourselves there almost every week. In Matthew chapter 28, Jesus speaking to his disciples, he says this to them. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, Jesus says. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Do you see there that there's a transfer of authority? Jesus says, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. It's been given to me. And then he says, now go. With authority, he says, go. He commands them. He authorizes his disciples to go and make other disciples. And Christian, listen, we have been commanded to make disciples. It's a command by Jesus himself to all of us. It's the work of a priest. The work of a priest. And so we saw the identity of Ezra, verses 1 through 6. And I want to jump into the second part there and that's Ezra's opportunity so we saw Ezra's identity now let's look at his opportunity you see Ezra had this deep desire to return to Jerusalem to restore worship in the temple and to teach the Israelites the law of God if you look at verses 27 and 28 it talks about how grateful he is how excited he is how he praises God that he wanted to do those things he didn't have the resources he didn't have the opportunity and now he does and so he praises God for that you look at the verse, if you look at verses 11 through 26, that right there, we skip the reading because it's, it's lengthy. But that's the letter that Artaxerxes gives to Ezra. And it outlines all of the blessings, all of the gifts that, that he would use to accomplish his mission that God had put in this king's heart to do. And I'll offer a summary. Verse 13, anybody that was Jewish descent could leave their station. They were free to go back to Jerusalem. Anybody could go. They were free. That was an answer to prayer. Ezra received it, verse 13. Verses 15 to 20, financial needs met. Whether it be in relation to the expedition as they traveled across, and all the food and things that they would need, the horses, whatever, camels, and then everything that they would need to get started in worshiping the Lord there in Jerusalem and to outfit it. Everything that they would need there financially, those needs were met as well. In verse 19, Ezra was to specifically to take some of the articles of gold and, and bronze that were donated in addition to the, to the tools and, 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 and water basins and articles that they had already had sent back earlier. This was in addition to that. In verse 24, all God's servants that consecrated to the work of God there in the temple were to be exempt from paying taxes. This is another answer to prayer, another blessing for, on Ezra. That God was just meeting these needs that he had. In verses 25 and 26, Ezra is given authority to appoint the rulers in the land. 
He's even given authority to, 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 to punish people and to, to confiscate things. And whatever would be in his way, he was given these needs. They were all met. When Ezra hears all that God provides for him there in, the, in that letter, he begins to praise him as we see in verses 27 and 28. Especially as he says, through this unlikely means, this pagan king, he would meet the needs through him. Specifically, I want to read that. Verse 27, it says, Blessed be the Lord, the God of our fathers, who puts such a thing as this into the heart of the king to beautify the house of the Lord that is in Jerusalem, and who extended to me his steadfast love before the king and his counselors. Before all the king's mighty officers, I took courage, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. He's saying, how awesome is God that he would do this? And Christian, that's how God always works. He puts a task in our hearts, and then he supplies all that we need to accomplish that task. I can, I can say that with confidence from my own experience. And in addition, and it's not necessary, but the word tells us that. But I can testify that God will do that. Go back with me to chapter 28. The command to go make disciples, there's an implication there that it's possible to make disciples. As we consider that in, in our culture today, we look around and we see there's so many things that are hostile towards what we believe to be true and what God's word has clearly laid out for us. It seems as though it's never going to happen, that we'll never be able to really truly push back darkness. Earlier this morning we talked about 40,000 people living in Hagerstown and the idea that we would love to see just 1% to hear the gospel this year. How lovely that would be. How wonderful. And of, the, of, of that 1%, for many of them to, to confess their sins and place their faith in Jesus and receive forgiveness, receive pardon, receive mercy, experience peace, that we could see that take place would be so wonderful. But if you're like me, you wonder if it's even possible. In that moment, we look at God's word and we say, is it, it is possible. God, give me the, the faith to believe this. As we think of it, we say, well, what authority do we have well, to do this? Well, it's been given to us by Jesus. He's the one who sent us. That's the authority that we have to go and make disciples. But what of the message? What do we have to say? Well, that also has been provided. And it truly is good news. You cannot buy forgiveness. You cannot buy mercy. You can only accept it humbly. That's a wonderful message. We, it's been given to us, clearly laid out in the word of God. We have the scriptures. What else do we need? Well, what about the power of God? We have that as well. We have the very spirit of God that lives in each and every one of the saints of God. He's already given the power through his presence, the spirit of God. And it works in the hearts of those who share and in the minds of those and in the hearts of those who would receive. We have the power. What are the results? Is there a context for this? Yes, as we look around, we say, well, maybe not. The Bible says, yes, there is. The fields are ready to be harvested, even as we speak. So with hope, as we look at this text this morning, we walk away saying, yes. Yes, we can make disciples. Yes, we will be successful, not because of our message, not because of our power, not because of our identity, but because the good hand of our God is upon us. We have a great opportunity have you ever heard somebody sigh about wanting to do something but lacking the resources? you ever heard somebody say something like that? Oh, I wish I could do that. I just don't have this. I wish I could dig that hole. I just don't have a set of gloves. Boom, there's a pair of gloves in their hand. 
Ooh, I wish I hadn't said that out loud, right? I, I wish I could do this. If I, if I only had this, I would do that. Imagine Ezra whining, praying maybe even to some degree there in Babylon about his desire to return to Jerusalem. God, I just wish that I could teach the law. I just wish that I could gather some Jews and we could go back and we could decorate your temple and we could begin once again to worship you as you've called us to worship there in your city. I wish we could do it, God. And God's like, oh, boom, here's a letter from Artaxerxes with everything you need. And then Ezra's like, oh, oh well, you know, uh, uh, imagine that. That'd be foolish, and that's not what we see Ezra doing here. No, when he receives this letter outlining all the, the blessings that God would give him, what does he do? He stands to the task. He runs to it. He doesn't run from it. My question for you this morning is, what will you do? I've just, just outlined that we have every single thing that we need, and I challenge you to show me what else we need. To be successful as we share the good news of Jesus Christ with the lost and dying world. What else do we need? What, else, what other excuse will you throw up and say, this is, this is something that we're waiting on. When we get this, then we'll do it. Don't be that guy. Don't do that. May we not be a church that just pines for souls to be saved and discipleship to occur, but to be a church that actually believes that God has called us and equipped us to do this good work. And may we take action. We examine, examine Ezra's opportunity. We see that he took action. Ezra's action, verse 10, third point. Verse 10, for Ezra had set his heart, he set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to do it and to teach his statutes and rules in Israel. And this is a powerful verse. This is very powerful I want you to really catch what's taking place here. It's where the rubber meets the road. This is where it gets real for Ezra. He notices all these things to be true. He, he, he references his own identity. He's well aware of that. He sees the letter that he gets from Artaxerxes, and then what does he do? He sets his heart to study the law, to do it, and to teach it. He takes action. As I read verse 10, initially, this phrase jumped out to me. It says, he set his heart. It's not a phrase common today, but it is common in the Bible. To set there, that, that word means to prepare, to direct. And I, I think of a marksman, and he's lining up his sights. He's lining up the, the, the rear sight and, and the front blade, and he gets them lined up on the target, and he, right on the bullseye, and he's, he's prepared. He's set the rifle. And now all that's left is the, tri- the trigger will need to be squeezed. And that's what it means in a sense to set. What is the heart? What does it mean when it says heart? What's that word? What suggests the whole of one's being? It's not a part of a person's being. It's the entirety, all that makes up an individual. It's not just the mind or the emotions, but everything. And so to set one's heart is to determine to be successful in a certain field or in a task. To make up your mind. To be directed and all in. In this area. And as I look through the Old Testament, for instances where this phrase is used, I notice something very interesting. That every time it's used, and it's used dozens of times, every single time the subject is the recipient of the action. The subject of that sentence is the recipient of that action. In other words, whoever does the setting is doing the setting to their own heart. See, we read that God sets his heart several times in the Old Testament. We read that Israel has been commanded to set their hearts towards God. 
David set his heart. Many others are recorded as setting their own hearts as well. And not once to my searching does it say that God set their heart. Now, is God sovereign over a man's heart? Yes, indeed he is. But does God also command man to set his own heart? Yes, he does. So God sets God's heart and man sets his heart. And it's always a personal task. It's always a personal job that needs to be done. One determines for themselves in which direction they will set their own heart. It is your responsibility. Another question that I'll ask you this morning is this. For what have you prepared your heart? To what have you set your heart? If to set the heart is like lining up the the rear sights and the front blade of a rifle on a target, what are you aiming for? Is it self-glorification? Is it a long and happy life? Is it a life free of pain? Is it a life aimed at pride, dying with the most toys, dying with the most acclaim? Is it not dying at all? What have you prepared your heart for? What are you aiming for? May the word convict us this morning. May the spirit of God reveal to us those areas in our, in our own lives where we have set our hearts towards something that is other than God. We have set our hearts other, at something that is other than obeying his law and studying his law and teaching his law. Again, may Hagerstown Church be a church that sets its heart collectively on the glory of God as darkness is pushed back and Jesus is made much of. But what does he set his heart to do? What does Ezra say he's going to do? These three things, we'll move through them quickly. He sets his heart, he lines up his focus on three things, studying, doing, and teaching. Studying, doing, and teaching. If you're taking notes, write those down in order because that order is important to study, we'll talk about that first. Psalm 1, it speaks of a blessed man who delights himself in God's law and meditates on his law day and night. Psalm 1, verse 2 says, But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. May, may God put it in our hearts. As we set our own hearts to study the word of God. This is where our action has to begin. Recognizing our identity. Seeing our, uh, the, the, the opportunity that God has given to us. Those are two things, but we don't act on those until now. We act on them by first studying. Just yesterday I was talking with my oldest son, Riley, and he was wondering why there were so many different divisions and and. and, and facets of Christianity and why it had been split so many times and I would give you your answer this morning son it's this that many like leg day skip studying the scriptures they skip it it's not important they move on to something else and I'm not here today to say that that I or Hagerstown Church is sitting at the top of the heap and saying that we have done the most studying but this is something that no Christian can overlook that none of us can avoid. We cannot skip studying. That's step number one. If you don't, you run without knowledge. It's speed without steering. We have to study 
first. And as Ezra studied the word of God, he became conscious that behind the sacred writings there was the authority of the living God, revealing his will and purposes to his people. Ezra couldn't get enough of it. He'd set his heart to study the word of God. He would wrestle with the text until he would understand it. Some say that they're simply not readers and they dismiss serious study of the sacred scriptures. They do that to their shame and they do that to their hurt. We cannot be a people that do that. We cannot be a people that say, well, reading is for others. It's not for me. I'm not a reader. We cannot be a people that shun study. We have to. It's what God has called us to. Each and every one of us, we have to, like Ezra, set our hearts to study, to study the word of God. And I don't say that in some legalistic manner to heap up more responsibilities on us that, that aren't in Scripture. It's, it's here clean, plainly. We have to study to show ourselves approved unto God, a workman that needeth not to be ashamed so we can rightly discern, rightly handle the word of God. If we do not study, if we neglect it, we do it to our own hurt and we do it to the hurt of Hagerstown and to the glory of God. We've got to be a church that studies. This year has been a, marked, a year marked with personal Bible study and I'm gonna just take a moment and ask you, how's that going for you? How's that going? We started the year by uh, agreeing together as a people and if you're just here this morning, you're wondering, oh, I didn't agree to that. But we started as a church saying we were gonna read through the Bible together. I'm going to encourage you, if you've fallen away from that, get back on. Get back to it. Study the Word of God. Take it seriously. Join a D group. Many of you are, are, are seeking that or in finding community around the Word of God. I would, I would encourage you to continue in that very thing, in studying the Word of God. Are we not a better people for it? Are we not a better disciple for it? Are we not a better evangelizer for it? Of course we are. So we can't skip this study piece. We, we have to be there, but we can't stay there. We can't just be a people who study. We must also be a people to do it. Ezra, again, he did it. He didn't just study. He wasn't just a brainiac. He didn't just have a pocket protector. He had walking shoes. He actually put it to practice. He got out of the study, and he went, and he applied it to his own life. And we must be a people that do the very same thing. There are Christians who spend all their time talking about the Bible and discussing the finer points of doctrine, but who never actually begin to live it. May that not be said of us. And if it is, may it be said no longer. There has to come a point where we descend from our ivory tower, we stop chattering and preaching amongst ourselves, and we start applying the very words of God and the laws of the Lord in our lives. And James warns against those who would be hearers of the word and not doers. Again, may that not be said of us. May that not be said of you. Not a one. That we hear the word, but we don't do the word. Let's study the word. Let's hear it. Let's pour into it. Let's pour ourselves into it. Let's pour it into us, but let's not just stay there. Let's be a, let's be a church that acts. It's a step that we cannot afford to skip either. It's the very definition of, of, of hypocrisy. To study something and to teach something, but not to do it. And not to follow through with it. But that God would give us a people, each and every one of us, a church full of D group leaders and pastors and servants and deacons that do just this. That study the word of God and do it. Would he give us a, a church full of fathers and mothers and brothers and sisters who do this, who study the word of God and then do it? What would our church look like if we were full of D group leaders who everything that we wanted, 
to see in a church we did ourselves. Everything that we thought was the ideal disciple and follower of Jesus Christ, if they did it, if they, if they displayed that in their lives. This is what I'm praying for. This is what Ezra has demonstrated to us. You can't just be a church that studies. You can't just be a church that does it and make sure that your nose is clean. You must also be a church that teaches it. And this is what we see, again, Ezra doing. He does the hard work of preparation. He studies it. He does it. He makes sure that he's in line, not just so he can teach, but because the word of God is powerful and effective in his own life. But he doesn't stop there. He moves out to teach. It's said of Ezra, as I mentioned earlier, that he was, in a way, a second Moses. He would implement the restart of, 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 of sorts, the worship of Yahweh there in Jerusalem. He would begin to disciple, in a sense, the Jews again. He studied it. He knew what he was talking about. He did it. And then he began to teach. Again, I move back to Matthew chapter 28. We've been commanded to make disciples, not to go. We've been commanded to make disciples. Matthew 28, that, that, the command there, the, the indicative, not the, I'm sorry, not the indicative, but the, 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 the command on us is to make disciples. And there's three participles that are attached to that. One is to go. Yes, we make disciples. That's the main thing. And one of the ways that we do that is we go. We don't just stay in our study. We don't just make sure we're taken care of. We get out of our study and we go. That's part of making disciples. Another one is baptizing. And it doesn't just mean the command that Jesus is giving is not just to dunk somebody. The idea is to share the gospel with somebody to where when they see their sin, we call them to repentance and they submit to the lordship of Christ in baptism. And repentance and baptism, that's what he's saying when he says baptizing them, another participle that attaches itself to that command to make disciples. And then the third is to teach them. It's to teach them. I can't help but think of, of, of the passage that Pastor Tim read just a moment ago. Colossians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. As you've received Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You've received Christ the Lord through faith, repentance. It's demonstrated through baptism. That's how you receive the Lord. And now walk in him. How do you walk in him? Faith and repentance. But not just in faith and repentance. You walk in Christ by fulfilling the commands of Christ that we see in this very passage, Matthew 28. And that is making disciples. Making disciples. Ezra, he had it in his heart to go back to Jerusalem, to study the word of God, to do it himself, and to teach his brothers there in Jerusalem. He, he had a heart to do that. And what happens? God blesses. And disciples are made. God is worshiped once again there in Jerusalem. I wanted to share this quote with you. John MacArthur says, he, he makes a helpful point. He says, the pattern of Ezra's preparation is exemplary. He studied before he attempted to live a life of obedience. And he studied and he practiced the law in his own life before he opened his mouth to teach that law. But the success of Ezra's leadership did not come from his strength alone. But most significantly, because the good hand of his God was upon him. I'll say that again. The success of Ezra's leadership did not come from his strength alone, but most significantly because the good hand of his God was upon him. And so there's no special recipe that I can give you today that would be divorced from the power and the hand of God upon his people. 
No matter how much we study, no matter how much we try to do, and no matter how much we teach, it will not see fruit unless the good hand of our God is upon us. And church, that is where our confidence can lie because it is upon us. We have been given this. And so in Ezra's identity, we saw that he was a priest, but not just he was a priest. We also are a priest. We come from a godly line, full of power and authority, because its source is in Jesus Christ himself. If you're a Christian today, you are a priest. We saw Ezra's opportunity. Ezra had been given every blessing, every need was met for him to go to Jerusalem and make disciples and to preach there. And what took place? He took, up, he took it up. He went. We have every opportunity as well as Christians we lack nothing. Every spiritual blessing that we need in order for us to be effective in the message and, and in, our, in, our, in our mandate, we've experienced, we see. And in Ezra's action, we see that he took action. And just as he took action, so do we. We must take action. But even in that, we, we don't gather courage knowing that we can do something. We take courage as Ezra did because we know that the good hand of God is upon us. I'm going to close here. Verse 27. I took courage, Ezra says, for the hand of the Lord my God was on me, and I gathered leading men from Israel to go up with me. Would to God that that, that passage right there be said of us one day. That we took courage. In July 2019, we took courage. Why? Because we knew the good hand of our God was upon us and we gathered leading men and women and we discipled them. May that be said of us. You see, church, what's been lost and stolen is now able to be reclaimed. That lost relationship with God, Ezra is saying, let's go back. Let's get back to Jerusalem. Let's go back and worship the Lord where he dwells. And our message is very similar. Christ the high priest, he's died in our place. He's, pre- he's prepared a way for us to be reconciled with God. And now what do we do? We take that message and we go. What has been lost and stolen is now able to be reclaimed. Would you take courage as we disciple? Let's pray. God, we thank you for these truths this morning. That what has been taken from us, what we have even given up, God has been restored. The state of brokenness that we found ourselves in, entrapped, enslaved to sin, you've broken the chains there. You've made it, a, made it a way for us to be restored to your presence, to bring glory to you, to be at peace with you. So we celebrate that. We make much of you this morning. Spirit of God, we call upon you now that you would work in the hearts and lives of those here present this morning. That those of us who are holding on to sin would confess that and repent of it. God, those of us who have been shirking our responsibilities to intercede, to go, to make disciples, you would call us to that work even this morning that we would commit to it. Jesus, those who are far from you this morning, would you draw them close? We ask that these things be done in the name of Jesus and so that you will be glorified. Amen.